Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who gets concerned when watching the news and hears the phrase, a new health study shows. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health. I'm here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Howdy. And we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio as always. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange. That is Boston University School of Public Health's research hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org. That's where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And just as a reminder, please, please, please go on to iTunes or whatever podcast service you use and give us a rating. Uh, yeah, we particularly want to hear from those two two people, two listeners from Belarus. And what about the one the the we I, we as far as we can tell, we have saturated the market in uh, what is it uh, Mauritania? Uh, I think we've Belize. got Belize. We got Belize. several Belize. Togo. Togo, that was the one. I think we got three listeners in Togo, know, or at we least love three it. downloads. We love it. Send so, in your reviews, shout out, folks. Shout out to Togo on yeah, this, go uh, Togo, man. On this episode great. of the podcast. But go ahead and give us a rating because that will help other people find us now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to get into a study that contradicts most of the research to date on the benefits of coronary artery stents for angina, or it might be an overstatement to to angina. Say Stable angina. angina. Stable angina. Stable angina. Is it really pronounced angina? Mm-hmm. Angina. Did angina. not know that. It is. Wow. Okay, I learned For something. the cognoscenti. For the, there you go. Uh, and in the second part of the podcast, our deep dive, we will get into whether it is ethic, what, what is ethically justified in medical research. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusement, we will get into the fun stuff in the research world. Or Don will give us some wacky stuff that we hope is really true, but no one's ever really sure it is. It really is. All right, so let's get into it in our first segment, segment one. We're going to look at a study that, honestly, it, it, it totally blows my mind that they were able to, to do this for reasons that we will get into. Uh, but I was I, I, this, is, this is a fascinating study. It was published in the, the Lancet just recently. The lead author is uh, Rasha Alami, uh, and it was titled Percutaneous Coronary Interventions in Stable Angina. Angina. I keep saying that. Angina. You're going to have to correct me through this whole thing. Angina. 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 Don't, don't confuse him. It's the Orbita study, and then it says a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. And so um, the part, what, what, one of the things I found fascinating about this study was if you get if you're signed up for the New York Times alerts, which are normally all, seem to be only sent out in the cases where there is political news or some country has been uh, has their president overthrown – actually sent out an alert about this study. Um, so in and of itself, I think that, that demonstrates that this was uh, a pretty uh, amazing finding. So I'll give you some of the, uh, the headlines. It's, one said, uh, study, stents no better than medications and stable angina. That was from the Pittsburgh Post baguette. Baguette. Gazette. Baguette. Bag- the, baguette. That's, was, that's the French version. Or is it baguette? I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> ah. Then uh, this one I found is a really strange title for the New York Times, quote, unbelievable, heart stents fail to ease chest pain. I don't know why unbelievable is in quotes. Because this is like gospel. Unbelievable in quotes, though. Isn't it just unbelievable? I think they mean it. I think they're not saying we don't believe it. I think they're saying this is amazing. Okay. Who knew? Wouldn't that warrant an exclamation point rather Uh, than quotes? Yeah, I know. It is true. It's bad copy editing, perhaps, on the Times. Uh, All right. 
Uh, and so then, uh, uh, to stent or not to stent for chest pain? No, no, no. no. <laughs> that's, that's CBC. Okay, that, that gets a single star. I'm sorry. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> Boo. Uh, okay, I'm going to stop there then. Uh, so, Don, can you, uh, can you break this down for us? Ta- yeah. Tell us what the, uh, the study design was and what they did and... Yep. and uh, Bear, <clears throat> bear with me. This I, is somewhat of a complex study. Um, so the, the apparently there are about five hundred thousand stent placements I, that are that are done globally. That is every based year. on the study. No, uh, no, no. No, I, well, I mean that that figure is based on the study. Is, That's is what they study. cited. Yeah. It's cited in the study. Yeah. I, re- I read some people disputing that number. Maybe really, about it's a lot half of that. It's but, just a but big still number. a lot. Five hundred thousand done for stable angina. It's wicked huge. Is that how you pronounce it? Angina. Angina. Okay. And Chris throws in the Boston. Yeah. Wicked huge. Yeah. So, so the, the, at, you know, as 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 you guys mentioned, um, there's the the conventional wisdom is that this is something that absolutely works, but it, but that fact. So why is, does it? Why just go through the popular wisdom because I think explaining the rationale is key here. The rationale for why okay. it should work. All right. So, so basically, what stable angina is is there is a angina. narrowing. There's a narrowing of the uh, of the co- coronary artery, which leads to a deprivation of um, blood flow and oxygen to the heart on a, on a, in, in such a way that exercise intolerance develops in an individual. So you can't walk up a flight of stairs, you get chest pain, you get heaviness. Is and that... then when you rest, it goes away. So the thinking is, okay. that, is that if you can, through the, through, by placement of a catheter, put in a stent, which is really just like a rigid tube into the coronary artery, where that obstruction is, you inflate it, it it presses that obstruction against the wall of the artery, and then that stent remains in place, bracing it open, break, keeping it open, and and therefore the flow of blood through that through that constriction is resolved, and therefore you get you resolve this the um, the this, uh, the heart being starved of blood when the demand increases when you exercise. So Which it makes totally perfectly, makes sense. Total sense. Totally Sounds makes sense. sense. Sounds good to me. So there've been a whole bunch of placebo. Uh, there've been a whole bunch of non-placebo controlled observational studies. No randomized controlled trials. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Randomized controlled unblinded studies. Can, and can you just uh, for the for the listener who doesn't know describe specifically what blind unblinded or blinded so, means? So what that means is that both the the physician who is doing the intervention and the patient know that they are getting the intervention. They know that they have gotten the stent put in. So in the past, what they do is they take a, a group of patients who they treat medically and a group of patients in whom they put these stents and they follow them for some period of time and then they test them for their exercise tolerance. And, the way and, you, they know, t- and you know whether you got the drug or you got the stent. You stents. absolutely do, yeah. yeah, because you get sent to the cath lab and you go through this yep. whole procedure, you get anesthesia and all the rest of that stuff. So it's unmistakable. This is like the yep. king of all unblinded kinds of studies. So um, what this group of researchers wanted to do was to sort of challenge that conventional wisdom by doing a prospective interventional study that was blinded. So what they did was they basically had How can you half, blind somebody had, to whether or not they got a catheter? Had, they had half of the group- Sham surgery. Oh. Can Tell I me more. Can I finish, gentlemen? I, I doubt it. <laughs> Sorry, Don. Please so they on. had half of the, half of the, uh, the, the, the group of, of patients um, would, would, uh, would get- the, the actual stent put in, and the other half went to the cath lab, and everybody in the cath lab pretended like they got the, the, the stent put in, and the patient didn't know whether the stent was actually put in. So then, they, over a period of time, they followed these, these patients, and they did, six weeks after the intervention, they did this exercise testing to see how many seconds elapsed from the beginning of the exercise uh, um, situation 
um, until they develop signs of either angina or or cardiac cardiac uh, stress in some way stress of some sort. Um, and and uh, basically, they they uh, they did this as a, a, um, a blind study in five sites in the UK. They had an independent steering committee and an independent data and safety monitoring board, which we'll come back to in the yep. second segment. They um, included um, individuals between the ages of 18 and 85 with stable angina who had a lesion in their coronary artery of 75% occlusion or more in a single vessel. And they, they absolutely uh, excluded individuals with more than single vessel disease because they tend to have a worse prognosis. And right. also because those people should be going to, to go to bypass surgery, right. where a single vessel right. disease right. should just be stented. That's the current dogma. Higher mor morbidity, higher mortality. Um, but they did exclude people who had a lot of bad disease and a, and, a, and a poor prognosis. And people went to the cath lab and they got this catheter, they got the angiography where they established whether there was an occlusion. And it was at that point that they decided to, that they approached the individuals for enrollment into the study. Okay. Um, and there were two phases. So after the um, operation or the sham operation, the people were put on intensive medical management. Um, well, they didn't do the sham operation. They did the initial catheterization to prove that they had... Um, that, was, that was before they were enrolled. They were enrolled after right. the As, after the angiography. Right after angiography, but not after the not. But then they did six weeks. That's of what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. But then <laughs> they did the, the 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 placebo versus sham operation at the end of the six weeks. Right. 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 So 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 the six weeks of medical <clears throat> intensive medical management for both groups, and um, it was really a, a very unnatural situation because these people were being seen or being contacted by a cardiologist three times a week. That yeah. never happens That's in real in real life. So they did maximal medical management uh, to get the stable angina under control and, and these people, then they randomized them to become, to either get the stent or get the sham operation. Did, did they get randomized even if they were able to get it under control? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Because um, <clears throat> most of them did. So all the staff- what about the, There were 17 who were excluded, I, I thought, because they got it under control was my understanding, but Betty, go ahead. Come back to that. All right, we'll come back to that. Um, so they, uh, so during the surgery, uh, the people who were doing the operation obviously knew what they were doing, but the patient was put under auditory isolation, so they had no idea. Um, and all the the staff in the cath lab were were uh, the, the, in the angiography lab were blinded. Six weeks later, they they brought them back um, and evaluated them. Um, so the primary outcome was pre-specified and was a difference in exercise increment with a bunch of endpoint events. What, what in particular were they, were they looking for in they, terms of outcomes? They were looking for a, a prolongation in exercise tolerance in the treadmill six weeks after the So longer time, on the, being able to be on the treadmill longer. Right. Got it. Right. So, and they did, they did something called an intention to treat analysis, which meant that there were some people in the placebo group who during the, the actual procedure had their coronary artery damaged and they needed a stent to put in, be put in, even though they were randomized to the placebo group. So when they analyzed it, they analyzed those people who got a stent as um, somebody who uh, didn't get a stent. And that's what the intention to treat. And, and why do they do that? Uh, because that's, that's, how, that's how they set the study up as an intention to treat analysis. And that's pretty standard for a lot of, a lot of these to, 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 randomized controlled trials. To maintain the, the benefit of randomization right. generally, which is the balanced groups. Yep. So... Um, so actually, you're right, Matt. So um, at the end, blood pressure was normalized. 39 um, individuals were symptom-free on medications, and 17 did leave the trial. Um, prior to randomization. Prior to randomization. Yep. So okay. the 89% um, of the randomized had symptoms. Um, there were two 
major bleeds because that is one of the side effects of the medical management because they're put on platelet inhibitors. And then four, as I mentioned, four placebo patients had an intra, yep. intracatheterization event. Um, the exercise time, so the, so the results were um, essentially that they found no difference in the exercise tolerance at the end of this procedure between those who got a stent and those who got a placebo. So in fact, it was a null finding. No benefit to getting the catheter, uh, getting the stent, excuse right. me, uh, in terms of exercise time. Anything else? Did they, was there any benefits in terms of other things? Um, which there were, there were some subtle ones. Um, so Don, you were going through the, 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 the endpoints and the primary endpoint here was, was exercise tolerance. Right. How far they, they can run before they get, they, yeah, they they get some, some stress. But they also had some, um, and then they also did some physiological measurements. So they had uh, dobutamine, dobutamine, right. dobutamine cardiography, where dobutamine is a drug that forces the heart to run. So it's kind of like chemical-induced stress, stress test. So chemical-induced watching hockey. Kind uh, of. For Got example, it. right. That's Got kind it. of like watching the, the Canadians if you're from Toronto. You it's have a to lot like to taking a do, dobutamine drip. It's very similar. That, um, that was for our long-term So I think, I think one of the other things that I thought was, was nifty about this study was at the end of the whole study, just before they unblinded it, they asked the individuals whether they knew which group they were in. And apparently almost all of them said, I have no idea which group, I, whether I have a stent or whether I don't have a stent, which I thought was, was interesting because it was sort of confirmation that the, random, the blinding process was successful. Yep. Yep. Can I ask a couple of questions? First of all, I, I don't think you said, how big was the study? Was this a, I mean, is this a really large randomized trial or what are we talking about here? Uh, how Not many so was big. It? What is it? It was 230 patients. 230 patients were, I think, randomized in about, uh, under, under 200 were actually yeah. Uh, analyzed. 104 so versus 90. It was 105 and 91 in yeah. the two groups. So, One, 104 and 90, I think. So just under, under, final, under 200. And then the second question, Don, so, so just so that I understand this correctly. So you keep saying placebo and you said that they go to the, they go to the catheter lab, but, but uh, they don't know what they got. Did, did they actually, so the, the, the placebo group, did they actually get a catheter inserted? Correct. They did. So they insert the catheter Correct. for this person. But just don't send the, the stent in. Correct. Pull it back out. Correct. And didn't do anything for Stitch that person. Sti- poked a hole in somebody, but right. didn't do anything Correct. for them. Correct. Right. Because one, cause one of the things that they wanted to do was to measure um, the severity of the stenosis, how, how bad the blockage how was. Bad the, uh-huh. And so the way they do that is they run the catheter into, into the affected artery, and then they advance a very slender probe trying to sort of snake its way through the, through the, across the obstruction. obstruction. And so then you have a – on the tip of that, you have a pressure – uh, transponder, and then further back towards where you put the, you know, I guess so upstream proximal? and downstream. Upstream and downstream. So upstream you have a a pressure transducer, and downstream you have another pressure transducer. So you can measure the difference in flow pressure on one side of the blockage to the other, therefore showing that there's a significant stenosis here because the pressure drops on the blockage. other side of the plaque, yep. right? Yep. And so they did that for everybody. Yep. Okay. And then they, while they had this catheter threaded, that's when the decision was to stent or to just pull it back. And um, and go no further. Got it. And that decision was based on the basically done on the table with blinding of of all the you know the patient of course and all the people who were in the recovery room coming out of it. So nobody knew beyond that point. And the people who did the yeah, procedure were strictly uh, yeah, it's literally because it's actually <laughs> putting in a coronary uh, you know in a catheter through your femoral arteries. It's quite painful. Oh, it's quite painful. Gross. Yeah, I mean it's a big big tube that goes into your into your thigh there to 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 run this catheter. Um, uh, okay. All right. So, 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 
both groups were blinded. Neither group knew whether or not they had actually gotten a, a stent put in. And right. the healthcare workers who took care of them. And the healthcare workers didn't know. So this was... The doctors, the nurses. The, the, so nobody knew. Very blinded. Except for the people who actually did the procedure, because of course there's no way to blind them. But they were under strict pr- protocol not to tell anybody what yep. they had done. Yep. Sort of like basically have no further contact with the patient or the patient's providers beyond that time point. Yep. Okay. So give us give us your 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 take on the study. So they 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 do this... This blinded trial, and they find, unlike what what is seems to be conventional wisdom, they find really not a lot of not not any benefit to uh, getting these stents versus just getting a tube stuck up you. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, I, well, I think it, I think it's a it's a really you know it's not a perfect study, but it is a very strong study. I thought their their blinding was was really Successful. impeccable. Uh, impeccable. Impeccable. I mean, they tried very hard. The protocol, and it appears, as Don was saying, to have succeeded. Their randomization looks very well balanced, and they included a range of of outcomes that 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 spanned objectively measured data, which would not be like the patient says, "I think" or "I feel" or "I believe," which we we know from the placebo literature are are the most sensitive to the placebo effects. Like you know, pain, for example, is is yeah, yeah. very very suggestible. So to get around that, they also included a number of, of, of objectively measured physiologic parameters, such as how much blood flow is going across these two catheters. And there, I think it was it was sort of interesting because if you dig into the fine print of their data, the the the, the individuals who got the stent actually did see a slightly increased um, blood flow, as you would suspect. I mean, how could they not? So the, there was there was, it wasn't that it didn't do anything. It did what it was supposed to do, which was to dope, which was to open up that artery. What it didn't do was to make the patients feel any different. And yep. that, that is just like such a, like a jaw-droppingly surprising result. Because as Don was saying at the beginning, right, you know, you've got this plugged artery and you've got exercise-induced angina. You walk up a stairs and it hurts and you stop, the pain goes away. And it's predictable and it's reliable. And you go to the cath lab and they find a plugged artery and you're like, aha, there it is. So you throw in a, a stent and then the patient's like, whoa, that feels much better. And the doctor's like, see, I fixed you. And everyone comes away from that convinced that this is, this is you know, the, the stent was what caused this effect. Mm-hmm. And yet the, the researchers were like, you know, the placebo effect, it's, it's crafty. <laughs> we got to be careful about it <laughs> because the placebo effect is awesome. And this is such an example awesome, huh? of, of how powerful the placebo effect. I mean, it is, it is really... It, it, it's like a textbook chapter case study on on the placebo. Okay, so the placebo effect being the idea that it it it, it just doing something, doing anything. So taking a sugar pill in the case of you know when you're talking about uh, something that requires uh, a drug or or maybe doesn't even require a drug, but but just like you have a headache, taking a pill helps make you feel better. Whether that pill is a sugar pill or it's actually the 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 aspirin or the ibuprofen. Just doing something, and and from what I was reading, apparently there's there's a suggestion that medical placebos are actually more effective effective to depend than surgical placebos. Uh, sur- sorry, surgical ones are, are more, more effective, more effective than, than than medical ones. That that you know the scary. more the more invasive the the sham is, the more wow. people are are effective. The mind is is an impressive thing, and and is able to you know you're able to feel better. By just doing something, which I think is 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 pretty wild. Can I ask? Um, so so this was not the first study uh, to to look at the benefits of these stents. So there had previously been a study 
uh, in believe it was in the New England Journal. I've got it here somewhere, but I can't dig it out because I got too many pieces of paper. That which had shown there was no benefit for these in terms of these stents in terms of heart attacks and mortality. Right. And so the argument being made was, well, they, we, they, we're not doing these to to prevent heart attacks or or to save lives. We're doing these to reduce the the pain, quality of life, quality of life. Right. So that's primarily what this is is about. And Absolutely. therefore, if it's if it doesn't actually do anything, do we need to be doing it or is it doing something? Right. And, if, and, 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 and Don, um, you, 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 when you were describing the, the results and you said that there was four patients in the placebo group who had to get a stent put in because they had intimal damage. What, what, what that means, to, to, to translate that into English, means intimal. that they, they had a heart attack while the stent was being inserted yeah. because the stent damaged the, epi- the endothelium of the vessel and caused an occlusion. That's bad. And so they had to then stent it open because they had triggered a heart attack. Now, this wasn't because it was in the placebo arm. This was a function of passing that, that pressure catheter. Because so it could have happened to, e- to either arm. arm. Yep. But it is a reminder that a, a, a percutaneous coronary angioplasty getting is a, not getting a, tube a benign stuck in your procedure. It does. It, it does has have some. major risks. Although, although they suggest that the risks are, are that this is an uncommon thing. Sure, it's uncommon, but, but it's not four zero. Two hundred is not that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. No, and I I, I remember from my residency, a, you know, a, a patient who died on the cath table because they they caused a. A dissection of the coronary artery with the stent. Oh. So these do happen. Yeah. You know, it's you know I think the cardiologists are very good at doing this, but this is not a zero risk procedure. And so if it doesn't actually have any benefit beyond the placebo effect, now whoa, that is a game changer. Unless, unless a person is willing to say, I'm willing to accept the placebo effect. Uh. I don't. I don't. That's a slippery slope, man. I don't think the case is completely closed. I don't either. Because I I think that there are a couple of, there's a couple of things that that call slightly call into question the 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 generalizability of these results. Definitely. And one is that there's this whole whole concept of small vessel disease, so that you can get stable angina because you have, in addition to that one lesion in your one artery, you've got a lot of occlusions downstream in the little tiny arteries in the heart that wouldn't necessarily be picked up by angiography. So there could have been an imbalance in that in the in the two in the two groups which the stenting wouldn't have helped whatsoever. So that's that's one problem. I think that the other the other issue that why, I'd, why would that be different though between the two groups? It, it it could be or it could not be. We we just don't we just don't know. We don't. No, but in a randomized trial, wouldn't we expect those to be reasonably balanced? I, I, not yeah. necessarily. Well, I think they. they I think I, I'm agreeing with Matt on this that they. Why not? We would expect that they those those would be balanced. But I, I had the same thought as you, Don, which, but thinking about this issue of distal small vessel disease or like subtle disease that's not picked up on angiography, you, you know, if, if you were to sort of think about the implications of this trial, we are, the, the, the dogma has been that intervening on the big lesion is the, is the one that's going to fix the stable angina. But if if this trial is correct, and if and I think obviously would need to probably re- replicate it. This is just one study. So I we should agree always with you there. Be careful. This is well, one with only two hundred patients. With only two hundred patients, so like let's not rewrite the textbooks quite yet. But l- supposing that they they repeat this trial and they find the same result, it would kind of imply that those distal small vessel disease may be far more important in the pathophysiology of stable angina than the big vessel right. blockage upstream. Yeah, sure. Right. Uh, that maybe this in fact changes the way we think about the problem in a, in a sort of a you know, I hate to use the word rather fundamental way. That the upstream lesion is really not that not important. Not that important. Right. And that 
there's, you know, these things develop so slowly that there's the collateral flow dynamics. I mean, who knows what? Yeah, but the, there's a lot the, of complexity The here. other point I want to make, and it's not necessarily about the methodology, but it's, it's the take-home message. And I think it's important for the listeners and the, the, the general public to not think that under all circumstances, mm-hmm. t- stents are wrong. And clearly, if you've got an acute, this, this was limited to stable angina. So if if you have an if you're in the process of having an acute MI because suddenly you have that blockage of that one vessel, a stent is life-saving. Mm, or yeah. if you have unstable angina because something has changed, stents can be life-saving, so we think, although yeah. nobody's done a randomized blinded control trial. On that. So, you know, it is conceivable that we could be wrong about that also. But Absolutely. in no way do we want the we listeners we don't want the listeners to think that, oh, I heard the her free association tell me Don say that the stents were the stents were no good and I'm just not gonna go to the hospital even though I'm having a heart attack. Well, no, because there is still therapy that, that can be done in any case, even if right. you were to right. but anyway. But not to refuse a stent if you're in the middle of having a heart attack. So I wanna go back to Chris, you said this trial needs to be repeated. I, I think we need there's no question. I agree with you. We need more evidence here. This is a a, a really cool trial, really well done trial. But this is 200 patients. <laughs> this is not strike me as the, you know necessarily the the only answer. And it's a, it's a specific specific population. Uh, these were healthier patients on average. I mean, as you said, for the reasons they had they had uh, single vessel disease. They had. Uh, they had uh, characteristics that would suggest they were slightly healthier on average. But but I'm not sure you could repeat this trial. Uh, at this point, now that this evidence has come out, and so I'm I'm wondering whether or not we can actually mm-hmm. can actually do it. Well, let's hold on to that for the second segment. But but I wanted to get to another issue, which is uh, they followed these patients for six weeks. Six weeks. Mm-hmm. That's not a long time. <laughs> and if you believe that this is a placebo effect, which by the way I'm not totally convinced of. I mean, if you actually look at these these uh, the the changes in exercise time between these two groups. Mm-hmm. The increase in exercise time was about 28 seconds for the group that got the catheter and, what, like 11 seconds increased for the, the group that got 16, the placebo. I think. So seconds. a difference of 16, but, but not much going on in the placebo arm. So I don't know that this is actually a truly a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. No, uh, no. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a, a, a subtle benefit. It did not reach statistical significance here. No, no, but I'm but saying even, trend, right? even if you look at the placebo arm, if there was a placebo effect, you would expect the placebo arm to also have a similar increase. And they had a tiny increase, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. increase of 11 seconds. Also, I don't know, is 30 seconds is what they powered the study to detect. An increase of 30 seconds, is that a meaningful change? Uh, hard for me to believe that I that... I don't know. I, th- I, think, I think it's just... Not being a cardiologist, it's hard, it's hard to know. But I, I know, but it's just I, somebody's, it's somebody's life. Uh, I, uh, anyway. Well, these are stable engineers. We're not talking about people having having an event here. Yeah. Right? So just, you could go up two flights of stairs more at the end. Maybe, rather than, maybe. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so... But they only looked for six weeks, and I, I don't know the reason why they looked at such a short-term outcome. But if you... Uh, but, I mean, I have a guess, which is that uh, if these... You know, if you're doing a a really risky trial, risky in the sense of we don't know that uh, sticking a catheter into people without actually putting a, a, a stent in there is a good idea, then you wouldn't want to let those patients go for a long time uh, having not gotten the stent in case you actually need to give them the stent at right. the end. So you'd right. only wait six weeks, right. which is fair enough. But if there's a placebo effect going on here, placebo effects you would think would be short-term effects. That after a while, if it's really just your mind helping you get through this this particular 
uh, scenario, that's going to wear off. Whereas if the stent actually does something, that's going to stay. Now they didn't show much of anything, so I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that that is true, but it does strike me that a longer term follow up would help to answer that question better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's a little. I mean, none of us are cardiologists, so I think no. we're, we're, we we have to be careful when we sort of wander. I'm into not this even field a doctor, here. right? Uh, I mean, the the whole process of 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 stents restenosing over time is is a is a big problem in the in the as I remember from internal medicine is a big problem in the cardiovascular field. Um, mm-hmm. So, but nonetheless, you know, you know, when you look at the 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 subjective uh, uh, improvement scores in terms of of um, physical limitation and mm-hmm. angina frequency in these two groups, you know, the 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 improvement in symptomat in symptoms is quite striking in both groups. Yeah. So but they got very intensive medical management. Yep. I yeah. think that accounts for a lot of it. Yeah, but then, then they had so this dramatic the procedure person. and then they walk away and six weeks later, they're like, wow, I feel much better. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's, it is it is a, a, a great segue. I don't know if we can talk about no. the placebo effect. No. Go for it. No. Well, I, I, I pulled some some papers that I wanted to enter into evidence because I just think that they enter are- Enter into the record? <laughs> enter into the record. Submit Your it. Your Honor. Okay. Um, uh, four, four just pithy uh, comments about um, placebo. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So one was a, a meta-analysis where they looked at um, pain studies, which had included an active control, mm-hmm. a placebo control, and also a no-treatment arm. And then they did a meta-analysis comparing the improvement in pain, yep. comparing those who got the placebo versus the no-treatment. So both groups got nothing. Both groups got nothing. And the ones who got the, the placebo had a 50% reduction in pain. So that you know is quite striking. Yeah. I agree. There is a a beautiful study in the New England uh, England Journalism of Medicine back in 2011 looking at asthma treatment where they had patients with asthma and they gave them albuterol um, inhalers to to release the abdomen. They measured the free flow of of air showing that there's an objective physiological difference due to the albuterol, but they also asked them whether they felt better. And so they gave them placebo albuterol versus actual albuterol. And the actual albuterol significantly improved their flow. But the symptoms were identical Mm. in the placebo arm. So, so the placebo feel better. felt as better, as improved from inhaling, inhaling nebulized saline as they sure. did from albuterol. And so I thought that was kind of striking. And then this, this last one I just thought was, was, was kind of jaw-dropping was a genetics analysis looking at the, the potency of the placebo effect as a function of HLA, uh, of, of different genes, that there are some people what? who are genetically, yes, here we go. It is um, the placebo effect by Hall et al. PLOS 2012. Um, they Pl- found Which that, PLOS? Uh, I think this was PLOS 1, it would okay. be my guess, but I'm not sure, where they had three different uh, genetic um, haplotypes, a, uh, a homozygous met, met, met for, um, methylalanine, um, a methionine, methionine, a valine, methionine, and a valine, valine, homozygous okay. mutants. And they looked at their response to the placebo as a function of these genetic haplotypes. And the ones who were oh. methionine, methionine had the most potent responses to a placebo compared with the valine, valines who had the least. And so to some degree, the suggestibility is hardwired. Interesting. Really interesting. So the placebo effect is not really in our, is, is not in our minds. It's in our Brains. Okay, so I didn't get all the, the details there, but I think what you're telling me is that we are genetically, the, our susceptibility to the placebo effect is genetically different depending on. Yeah, wow. and it, it is hardwired. Wow. It is really a, 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 a profound thought. Okay, that's, uh, I, I think that, and that's the key. That's I mean, one that is study. Why, that is why, <laughs> right. That is why the, 
the blinding is so important. And I want to end with just one fun fact about this particular study. So the key to this study was the blinding, right? The fact that they 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 took this essentially a risk and 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 blinded people, put this catheter in so that they would feel like they got something when in fact they did may may not have. Um, they were so it was so important to get that point across. It, it, and a search of this study shows that the word blind appears 44 times <laughs> wow. in this paper. That is... Uh, that's, un, that's unseen. This that, is like the blind uh, leading the deaf. You had to go there. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. So in our second segment, uh, we want to talk about ethics a little because obviously this, this trial was tricky in terms of whether or not you think it is ethical to put a catheter into people when you're not actually going to put a stent into this into people. Uh, and and I think to some people, that would sound like something we really shouldn't be doing. So I want to talk about a particular aspect of ethics, which is this concept of equipoise. And equipoise is the idea that we don't, uh, maybe you guys have better explanations, but we wouldn't want to do uh, an intervention study on people unless we had uh, a real balance between the idea that that we think this might work versus it might not. We really have to be pretty unsure as to whether or not something's going to work in order for it to be ethically justified for us to to do the study at all. Right. And so I want to talk about whether or not we think there was equipoise and whether or not in studies like these are uh, have equipoise in general. Before we do that, Don, can you just sort of give us a little bit of a background for the listener who is not in the field? Um, the kind of ethical oversight that goes on in studies generally, medical yeah. studies? Um, so, so, so generally, there is a tremendous amount of ethical oversight. Um, a study like this, really any study on, on human subjects, um, is required um, to, to be presented to an institutional review board. And the institutional review board's charge is really to determine whether there is excess risk that is imparted by participation in this study. And the Institutional Review Board not only um, is comprised of experts, scientific experts, medical experts, but it's also, um, it's mandated that it have a community member. So there has to be somebody from the yep. community who who doesn't have that high level of medical or scientific expertise because that's sort of a way for the concept um, to be reality tested on the ground. And it's a really very, very critical part of the review by the Institutional Review Board. So every study like like this has to have that review, and that review has to be renewed every year while the study is going on. And a study like this, where there's a, it's a randomized control intervention study, yep. needs to have a data safety and monitoring board, and 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 that's separate from the IRB. But the results yeah, of board, the yep. of the DSMB. Um, are 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 fed into the IRB and the, and their cons consideration. What a DSMB does is it does interim analyses. So for this study, the, the DSMB would be given the results part, part, part of the way through the conduct of this study, and they would be given the code as to who is who's blinded and who's not blinded. And they're the only ones in the study who know that other than the people who actually did the catheterization. They do an interim analysis, analysis and if there's excess risk in one arm or the other, they have the power to stop the study. They also have the power to stop the study if they get, um, if they do an analysis and the results of the, hypoth the hypothesis that's being tested cannot be proven by the end of the study. The DSMB can stop the study and for the reason of futility, meaning that it's unethical to continue to expose mm -hmm. these subjects to this intervention if the, the results are, are, are so close that it can't be 
that the 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 goals of the study cannot be achieved. We cannot figure the figure the we cannot answer the question. Right. So so the point being here that in a study like this, in any in any study, there would be a review, ethical review by a body, in this case by a, a group that is part of the the universities to which you know in our case the university to which we are. Are part of that reviews these, looking for uh, risk, looking for risk to, and they are completely independent from the study team. Completely independent from the study team, and it's their job to to oversee the the uh, that the study meets ethical standards, um, which means in a study like this, somebody, an ethical board, had to have said, "We sign on to the fact that this is an ethical study to do to to catheterize somebody without actually giving them a uh, a stent." Um, and so in order to meet that, they have to have this standard called equipoise, the idea that it's, it's, we consider it reasonably as equally as likely for there to be uh, uh, no effect as there is to be an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, do you think this study met that standard? Do you think it was reasonable? I mean, this is not the first study to do a sham procedure, right? There is a, there is a history. Uh, Chris and I were talking about this. This goes back to a study in 1959 published in the, the New England Journal of Medicine that, that randomized 13 people to get – to get uh, a sham surgery for for angina as well, um, but when is it justified and and when isn't it to do something like this? Because I'm not sure I would have stud- signed up for the study if I had angina. Chris, what do you what do you what do you think? Yeah, um, I mean, the, 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 the important point is that the patients had. Um Choice yes. whether to enroll or not, and so this is this is one of the. Well, the, that's oh, no, 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 no. They didn't in this this study that I was telling you about nine, from nineteen fifty nine in the New England Journal. Uh, they had a choice. I right, mean, they, they right. did have that's a choice. Nineteen fifty nine. Nineteen fifty nine. We don't operate that way no, anymore. No, no, I agree. But what, what amazed me about this study was they didn't tell them that they were going to be in a study in which they were randomized potentially right. to either a placebo or. And they that, just told them they were in a study. We're of, talking about the nineteen fifty nine study. I was just, I was shocked. And that's huge and surgery. That's, much much worse. Much more much more debilitating than this was. Again, I know it's nineteen fifty nine, but there was the. I, wow. So we don't I, do that anymore. People have choice. There is consent forms that need to be completed. So these people were fully were, informed. were fully informed, and they were free to opt out if they, they wanted. They knew to. there was a fifty fifty chance that they would get nothing. They were told. They were told that. And you know, then the you know the other then the next step is that the condition they were treating was was stable angina. They so they 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 excluded patients who were at high risk of actually having a heart attack and needing yeah. needing a stent because right. of medical necessity, not just for symptoms, but because they were possibly going to die. And so that is an important distinction. And the second one is that they only follow them up for six weeks. So if if we could, you know, if for example it turned out that the placebo arm was not doing as well as the stent arm, in six weeks, you can put in a stent. It's like it's not the end of the world. So there is. It's not like they're they've been assigned to a pathway that is now irreconcilable that cannot be remedied in the future. So because of that, I, I think actually it was ethical and and uh, not just in hindsight because we now know right. that they were right for asking yeah, yeah. the question because of the placebo effect is so potent. But the the fact is that the placebo effect is incredibly potent. You know, and and as you said earlier, uh, the the most potent effects are often seen in surgical interventions yeah, because yeah, yeah. the more dramatic the placebo, the more likely the placebo is to work. Yep. You know, I, th- I think it's also important to say that that like many intervention studies, uh, blinded intervention studies like this, if in fact the DSMB. Um, found that there was an imbalance, that in fact the intervention was far more successful than the placebo, they would stop the study and everybody who was in the placebo arm would be offered the benefit of getting the intervention. 
Yep. So, but 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 the question remains: Would you would you sign up for no. the study if you were in it? I mean, I I I find it hard to believe, and I I I tried to to sort of suss this out. So I may get this wrong. So I, I let me let me just try. So they enrolled two hundred, but well, they randomized roughly two hundred patients, right? They were randomized between January 6, twenty fourteen, and August eleventh, twenty seventeen. So it took them three and a half years to to randomize two hundred patients. Mm-hmm. Over, at, at, done at five different sites. So you're talking about roughly 12 patients per year per site, mm-hmm. right? This is, I mean, I think that speaks to the fact that this isn't, and, and you have lots of people with angina, right? I mean, this is not, it's not right. hard to so find. Presumably a lot of people There's said There's probably no a lot thanks. of people eligible and probably a lot of them said no well, thanks. Well, they, I can, they, they say here on the flow sheet that 83, declined, 83 out of the 368 who were assessed for eligibility declined participation. And that, but those are those are people who actually were assessed for eligibility. Presumably, there are other people who were the study was described to them, and they were they didn't go through the the, the full eligibility assessment. They mm-hmm. just said, "Yeah, thanks, I'm not interested." Mm-hmm. And I, I expect that was was pretty common uh, given the amount of time. But now it, it, I could be wrong. I mean, it could be that just it took them a long time because they didn't have the the resources to be doing this all the time because it's resource intensive to do all this planning. But my sense is that probably a lot of people said no to this, and I think that. You know that gets us to a little bit into the who who is who is in trials. It's generally people who are, you know, healthier than the average population or healthier than the people with a particular condition. Not always. Um, you know, this stuff is is hard to do, and I think it's ethically uh, <laughs> something that 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 is challenging. But mm-hmm. clearly, the the results suggest that that blinding was necessary, mm-hmm. um, and that that it without it you would not. You know, the the previous studies that didn't use blinding. Came to the conclusion that there was a benefit that that may not actually may not actually be there, and so I I wonder whether more studies after a study like this would be Maybe using easier. sham w- would be using sham procedures. I mean, we know they've done them for sham knee surgeries, which, as you said, is far more invasive. Where they've gone in and you know you get a just open people up and then sew them back up together. And you don't do anything. So you're saying that the whole the whole uh, sort of um, antecedent concept of equipoise is now challenged. I, I don't know that it's this alone does it, but I think that there is uh, there have been uh, a number of these sham studies that would suggest that we do really have to be careful about the placebo effect, and that does change the calculation a bit. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but we have to be very deliberate about sure. it. I mean, the whole issue of clinical equipoise is is uh, it, it is a it's so complicated because. What is the risk? What is the what is the ethical risk when there is a prevailing dogma? Um, you know, when the community is so certain that there's a benefit, um, you know, and yet the benefit is not actually there. How do you do a placebo-controlled trial? Yeah, uh, it, it is it is fiendishly hard. Well, so in the in the in the fields that we work in, in the, in the pneumonia trials, we've often talked about is it would it be ethical to do a trial uh, for treatment of pneumonia that is just watch and wait. Not severe pneumonia. <laughs> not, uh, yeah, not kids with non-severe pneumonia to just watch and wait because many of those kids have don't really have pneumonia viral inf- or they have viral infection, right. in which is not going to be treated with with antibiotics. Right. But it is seen as you know you have to do this, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then sometimes it's just people's people's feelings. You know, we we'd often talked a long time ago in the days when it was hard to get uh, access to HIV treatment, whether it would be ethical to pay people. To remain HIV negative, so every time you got a, a negative test, you, you we'd get some kind of 
a reward. Well, people get very uncomfortable with that idea or paying them to now in the days of treatment to, to maintain their treatment because that prevents treatment, uh, prevents transmission onto other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get really nervous when you start talking about paying people or, or, or uncomfortable. Yeah. I shouldn't say nervous, uncomfortable. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, but, uh, Chris, yeah. you want the last word? Well, I was going to say I'm 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 reminded of a really sad example of of um, you know why we need placebo-controlled randomized controlled trials. Um, you, you know, there many years ago there was this um, uh, a very aggressive treatment for advanced metastatic breast cancer called stem cell rescue, um, where the you know generally um, if you have stage four metastatic breast cancer, it is it is it is in most cases, a fatal disease. It's, it's, it's almost always fatal at that point. And so um, standard chemotherapies had been unsuccessful at managing this. And the, the, the belief in the oncology circle was that you know, the problem is that we can't give enough, we can't give enough um, chemotherapy. So we just need to up the dose, but the patients can't survive the therapy. So there's like a ceiling on how much chemotherapy you can give. So the idea was that if we take out the bone marrow and, as sort of a reserve, and then we can you know, we can give extremely high doses of chemotherapy beyond what would normally be tolerated and then reinfuse the bone marrow to restore the immune system of the patient. Yep. And um, and so this sort of very radical procedure was promulgated in the oncology literature and eventually became a became the sort of standard practice. But it had become standard practice in the absence of any randomized controlled trials. Um, and so there was a trial that had been started, and as the trial was progressing, the practice became standard of care. And so at that point, it became really difficult to enroll patients into this protocol mm. because all the oncologists were like, no, no, this is just what we this. do. We have to do this. We have to do this. And so it took about a decade before they could finally complete the trial, and they found no benefit. Mm. No benefit. And so there you go. I mean, it's just like just because it is the popular wisdom does not mean that it is true. Sure, um, sure. So, you know, we have to... All right. Be humble here. All right. Well, on that note, let's uh, move into something completely different. All right. So let's get on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment. And uh, in this particular segment, uh, we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do, the weird and wacky of our, our particular field or the things that just inspire us. And I am going to let, uh, I'm gonna let Chris have the, the first go at this this time. Sure. I thanks, Matt. Um, I, th- today was another paper from um, the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, which Somebody is a was reading. stellar journal, by the way. Um, and uh, it, it is all about dirty birds. I mentioned this at the beginning. Dirty birds. <laughs> dirty <Got it>. birds. <laughs> is, that, is that a cell phone game or video game? No, that's Angry Birds. Uh, oh. <laughs> I feel like you might have mentioned it two weeks ago. That, yeah, that is the um, industrial uh, uh, industrial ahead. era version of Dirty Angry Birds. So um, we have talked about. Uh, um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and um, greenhouse gas contributors, g- greenhouse contributors. Most of the attention is on methane and carbon dioxide as greenhouse gases. But methane? What it, m- methane. 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 Angina. 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 <laughs> Got it. Methane. Wait, where did you get? Are you like from methane, the UK or something? Euthane. Aluminium. Whatever. <laughs> Whoever anyway. thane. No. Um, so the tricky thing that there's a there's a a third major uh, greenhouse, uh, greenhouse contributor, not gas in this case, which is soot, and particularly um, what is called black carbon, uh, which is soot that comes out of coal burning, essentially. Um, so. This is a, uh, a common byproduct of coal-burning industries in general. And, and we probably all remember, like, the, the moths 
um, the white moths and the black moths who became favored because the trees that they sat oh. up on became old, you know, sooty and black. And so now the black moths are favored and they don't get eaten by the birds because the white moths are sitting out like a sore thumb and get picked off by the birds. Um, the, um, the truth is that when you, we measure soot, the only real uh, evidence we have about soot deposits over time is the greenhouse um, glaciers, uh, the, 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 the Greenland glaciers. And mathematical models that have tried to explain the greenhound, the, the deposition of soot in the greenhouse, in the Greenland. Greenland, sorry, the Greenland glaciers doesn't line up with what the Greenland glaciers, glaciers show. And, three times. And so what they, <laughs> they wanted to do is to say, can we provide some external empirical evidence to validate or refute the soot deposition data in the Greenland glaciers? And the way they did this Deposition. Got it. Um, was to look for another, another sample that was collected longitudinally over time, because our soot measurements only go back to around the 1950s. Ours? Yours yes. and mine? Yes. We've only been measuring soot in, in the air for about the last 60 years. So got it. So it's been there for much longer. Yeah. And so the way they did this was to look at light-colored birds. Light-colored birds. You know, which had like a like a white underbelly or white feathers that would get sooty, and there are a number of common species of birds that um, have been collected routinely for over a hundred years um, that uh, can get dirty, and and so they did that, and they did it. Uh, they did an analysis of some very large number of birds, fourteen, thirteen hundred bird specimens, old birds, birds that have been dead for some time, that are sitting in in like people's collections with a thumbtack through them on the wall, Got it. basically. Bird or carcasses. A, bird carcasses. carcasses, but mostly in museums um, that had been collected in the Great Lakes area and the states where basically the Rust Belt, where most of U.S. heavy industry was going on with coal-burning power plants and coal-burning machines that you know were building cars or whatever they were building, but they were using coal to make heat yep. to make to drive their engines. And so they were able to to use these data to basically validate that in fact the Greenland glacier data appear to be quite correct. And there was this really cool looking um, uh, time series analysis in this where they looked at the sootiness of the birds as well as the sooty, uh, as well as the consumption of or the the, the burning of, of coal, coal in the United States at the same time, and the two line up beautifully over time until around 1950, when the the sootiness of the birds goes down, even as the consumption of the burning of of coal is going up. But this was the point in time when clean coal was introduced, oh. and when they started to insist less sooty, less sooty. So this was clean coal, which is what like you know home. Uh, furnaces would burn to keep your house warm in, in the winter. They'd start to use clean coal, mm -hmm. uh, which is not releasing soot. Uh, and also that when when they started to switch over to power plants that burned, either captured the carbon or burned clean coal as well. And then you see that the sootiness of the birds, you know, continues to go down, 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 even though the carbon uh, emissions from burning coal goes up and up and up and up, ah. which is, I think, a sort of like beautiful that you have this sort of, you know, proof in a through this sort of very backwards way showing that these simple, well, maybe not so simple, but these interventions in terms of clean coal and the use of different technology in power plants really had a profound effect because prior to that time, the two of them line up. 
There's also, I think, a beautiful story in that you see a dip in the sootiness of, of the birds that occurs in the, in the Great Depression, when most oh. of these businesses went out of business and stopped burning anything because the factories were closed. Pretty cool. It's, it's just a beautiful argument. It's a beautiful little, little paper. Experiment. I think it's really important to point out that we are three days away from Thanksgiving, and Chris just made a very eloquent argument for dark meat. Actually, I, I, I think you're <laughs> wrong. You I think you're wrong. Thanksgiving I already think, happened. I, I, well, no, not for us. No, no. <laughs> for the listeners. For the, Thanksgiving was weeks ago. Anyway. Anyway, so this was, okay. um, the title of the paper was Bird Specimens Track 135 Years of Atmospheric Black Carbon and Environmental Policy by Shane Dubay well and Carl Fuldner in PNAS All right. 2017. All right. Sounds good, Don. What do you got for us? You want, yeah. You want me to go? I Well, All I right. do. All oh, right. you were going to go last. Uh, I could go either. No, go. All right. So we had, the three of us had talked at some point about um, doing, uh, in these podcasts, a review of our own papers. Yes, we did. So we I are thought, going to do that at some point. So I thought it would be appropriate to actually introduce a paper that one of us has, oh, yes. has created. I have to guess who. And the, I can and guess the name who. of this I paper. I know exactly who it is. The name of this paper is Gustatory Preferences for Marmite versus Vegemite Among <laughs> Americans. This is my finest paper. Published in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. Yes, one of the one of the proudest by findings. By Christopher Gill and Paul Bolton. And so the premise for this study is to try to figure out, try to um, resolve this ongoing debate that has occurred amongst countries that are co- uh, in the Commonwealth. Going back to... In, going back to 1905, I think, when Marmite was first created. Got it. Um, to try to resolve which is better. And it's important to know that Chris Gill has an association. You were brought up in, in UK? or you I, have I was born there, but I, lived, I grew up here. But you have this very, very strong affinity I've, I've been for the UK. eating Marmite since I was a baby, yes. Right. Oh. And the other author was, was Paul Bolton, who was a faculty member um, in our department, and he was Australian. And so they would have these raging debates during lunch or well, during our faculty meetings. He wouldn't listen to reason. And so they both decided that the only way for our Australian to, listeners. Res- to resolve this issue was to run a side-by-side comparison among the faculty in our department, full which they did. Full disclosure, were you involved in this trial I in any way? I was involved. I was one of the subjects as, of yeah. this as study. As was I. And so what, what they did is they set this up as a side-by-side Blinded trial with little squares of toast. Blinded, on, on, blinded because you go blind after on, you eat this stuff. On which was spread either a Vegemite or Marmite. Oh, and they had, butter. there was a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to the study. And the quantitative aspect, essentially the bottom line was that all disgusted. of the Americans could not discern a difference between Vegemite and Marmite. And all of the Americans found them equally disgusting. Yes. <laughs> That and, is so right. And there, there was a scale that was used um, for figuring out uh, what the quality of the appearance, smell, taste, and after flavor of Marmite and Vegemite Spelt were. Spelt with British spelling. And it well went, done. For appearance, it went Didn't from enticing to induces a fight or flight response. Yep. The smell was deliciously aromatic or worse than smelling salts. That sounds for taste, right. it was mighty good versus emetogenic, which means it induces I vomiting. Don't know what that, oh, okay. There after you go. flavor was tantric. Ecstasy versus <laughs> like something died in your mouth. I go with the, for the last <laughs> so, one. Anyway, oh, and then I there was a lot another, of fun with this one. There was another scale which went from god awful 
ferment of the bounties bilge what? like arthropod jelly on toast, <laughs> concentrated <laughs> pond scum, my asthmic effluent or nectar of the gods ambrosia. I can tell you it's not that last one. <laughs> so I was Ooh. so, I, I thought this was a brilliant piece of work and I thought it was, well done, Chris. it was really pushing the barriers far. About, but then, yep. then I went into the literature and I found out that there are Apparently, 75 other comparison trials between Marmite and Vegemite. And in fact, there's apparently, there's also a New Zealand version of Marmite. And really? when, when the New Zealand earthquake happened in Christchurch, the factory that makes the New Zealand Marmite closed down oh. and the people in New Zealand apparently freaked out when they called it Marmageddon. <laughs> Apparently, like Marmite it. is the world's most polarizing spread. But yep. the most interesting thing that I want to point out is that there is a Marmite gene project where an or- a specialist genetics company called DNA Fit has determined what is the genetic predisposition of whether you love or you oh, hate come Marmite. On. This is like the, the anosmia. And apparently, they have looked, they've looked at um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they've associated it with whether you are a Marmite You've lover or hater. And so Americans don't have that. And it turns out Americans that, are that you can, for, for 89 pounds, you can get your gene, um, your, your genetic makeup to, um, sent in, yep. and they will determine whether you are a lover or a hater. And what they say <laughs> is that it turns out that preference for Marmite is genetically predisposed. And the, the, the report that they put out say, it, uh, secondly, Roos explains in a, in, with some serious, quote, that lovers and haters can coexist in the same family. Really? Even if two parents are haters, they can still have a love child. Oh, <laughs> that is just terrible. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. And did you, and did you it know was that, a brilliant piece of work, Dr. Brilliant. Gill. Thank well you. done. Did you know that the Prime Minister of, of, um, of New Zealand, when that earthquake came and, and destroyed the Marmite factory, went on the, on the radio and said, do not panic. We will import Marmite. <laughs> Marmite supplies to keep you going. You will not have to eat Vegemite. Oh, that is scary. All right. There you there go. There was concern about this matter. All right. Uh, well, so I went, uh, as usual, in a completely different direction. I'm going to tell you about an Are you article. Gonna t- t- tell us another story about how anxious you get when you submit articles or I, abstracts. This or... one I don't have to, but yeah, I had other ones and I decided not to go in that direction because that is generally... Uh, I, I had another one that was perfect for that, but no, I'm not going to. So this was this was an article that was written in uh, Science News back in 2015, July of 2015 by Tom Siegfried, which uh, the title of it is 10 Ways to Save Science from Its Statistical Self. And it is, it's a very, I think, thoughtful article on some of the problems that have come out in science for some of the reasons that we either have or have not talked about, but as you know, they, they annoy me. Um, some of which, you know, are... are Things that make a lot of sense, so things that um, deal with uh, just the problems with hypothesis testing and p-values, which I've told you about, uh, better textbooks for teaching statistical sciences, um, rethinking media coverage of science, which is something that I agree with. Uh, number 10 is definitely one of my favorites, band p-values, which, you know, <laughs> I am, I am a, 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 and rethinking confidence intervals, great, I'm an emphasizing estimation. But the, uh, the one that is my absolute favorite, even though I'm not sure it's a good idea, is number six. Create a journal of statistical shame. <laughs> so like, I'm like not sure this is a... of shame. I'm sure, I'm sure this is a terrible idea. Uh, I'm sure that if they ever started one, 
the uh, Vegemite study would end up in there. <laughs> but uh, I loved it as a as a as a thought idea. Um, let's hope it never actually happens. So. That brings us to the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at PopHealthyX or tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or you could tweet Chris at, at ID.Gill or Don at, at DThea1. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian. Director of Lifelong Learning at BUSPH for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download our next episode. Next 10 episodes. Next 10 episodes. Next 10 episodes.